Matthew chapter 7, I want to look in verse 24, and then we're going to go back a couple of chapters. And don't worry, I'm not going to preach through three chapters today. Well, I am, but not, not literally each verse individually. So, if you look in verse 24, Jesus is summing up or coming to a close with the Sermon on the Mount. And he says this in verse 24, Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine, and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon a rock. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat upon that house, and it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. Let's pray. Father, we love you, and we thank you for the honor and the privilege this morning of coming together as a family that you have redeemed and celebrating you and talking about your words that you have given us to live life by. And God, I ask that you would be glorified and that you would be honored and that your will would be accomplished, Father, in our hearts and our lives, each family represented here today. In Jesus' name, amen. So here we have Christ coming to the summation of his sermon that he spoke on the Mount of Olives. And he says here, he says, everything I've just given you, if you will live according to it, You are going to be, I equate you to a home that has been built on a rock. The storms are going to hit. The trials are coming. The waves are going to crash in. But you know what? You're going to be okay. And it's a wonder. It's awesome to know that because we live, we understand on a daily basis that we live in a fallen world. We get it. We all, we don't have to, that's not information, that's not new knowledge, that's not light bulb for anybody, right? We all understand hardship. Everybody in this room, if you lived any length of time at all, you have, you have had heartache, you have had trouble, you have had trial, you have, you have disappointed, whether it's been other people that have disappointed you, or whether you have disappointed other people, we have all walked in those shoes, every single person. So we understand whether the storm is of our own making or whether the storm is coming from the outside, we understand that storms happen. And Christ says, if you'll listen to the words I'm teaching you. And so it's always good. Solomon said, talked about the conclusion of the whole matter. If you ever were read in the King James the word therefore, you've heard people say, if you see the word therefore, find out why it was therefore, and you have to go back and read what was before it, right? And so when you read a conclusion, you want to read the beginning and find out where it got you, how it got you there. To me, to, I like to think, and I don't think I'm always consistent with this, just like I don't, I don't think any of us are in some of our areas, I, I like to think of myself as a logical person. And if I'm going to this point over here, it's got to have a progression that makes sense to me. Well, I don't care if it's conversation. I don't care if you're talking science. I don't care if you're talking history. I don't care if you're talking opinion about things. You, You need to be able to have logical steps to the next thing. So when Christ says this passage, in this passage, and he says, if you hear these words, well, I want to know what his words are. It wasn't just the words right before that. It wasn't just something over another passage specific to this situation, he started this sermon in chapter 5. And if you go back and you look at chapter 5, he starts it off 
It says, in seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain, and when he was set, his disciples came unto him, and he opened his mouth and taught them. And that's from that point of verse 2 until we get to the end of chapter 7, he's teaching. And you might say, well, preacher, we got to eat lunch at some point. I don't know that you can go through and teach the entire Sermon on the Mount just this morning. And I'm not going to. I'm going to sum it up for you. And then we're going to hit something big at the very end. Here's the whole point. He started the whole thing off. Now, you got to think, he's talking to believers. Now, I'm sure there are unbelievers mixed in the middle of them. But he's speaking to believers and he says, to now, now, also, let me pause here and say this. What kind of people were in his audience? Pharisees were probably there, paying attention, because they were just interested in what was going on. Fishermen, we know, were there. Um, I would say by occupation, some of those Pharisees might have had other occupations, such as tent maker. You had different people out in the distance, whether they were believers or not, that were paying attention to what was being said. So fishermen, tax collector, whatever, you've got occupations across the spectrum, and these people are all there listening to what he's saying. And when he's speaking, and in a couple of other passages, we've said this multiple times over the past two months, when Jesus says, those of you that are prone to listen, if you have ears to hear, listen to what I'm telling you. If you're a believer, if you're out in the crowd today and you believe in me, then you know I'm talking to you. Listen. That's what Jesus was saying. And he says here as he taught them, you are, and he started it off with two things, and and this is in the very beginning, you are the salt of the earth and you are the light of the world. And we, I spoke just a few weeks ago on being salt and light. I think I've spoken on that topic twice in four years here. We, whether you want to be or not, whether you understand or not, whether we are aware or not, we are light and we are salt as Christians. If the Holy Spirit indwells us, if we have been sealed by the Holy Spirit of God through salvation, if we are saved today, you are the flavor and seasoning of this world and you are the light that is supposed to shine in darkness. It's not that you don't have a light if you're not shining in darkness, it's that you've hidden your light. It doesn't mean the light's not there. If you're saved, the Holy Spirit's inside of you. And if you're just not shining your light into the dark sin around you, then that means you've covered up the light. It's in there, but you're, you're being selfish with it, and you're holding it all in. You might say, well, I'm not being selfish, I'm just not worthy. None of us are worthy. I'm not being selfish, but my actions, I don't feel like I should shine that light. Well, that's what Satan wants you to believe. You know, the truth is, the more you shine that light in the lives of others, the more it will reveal your own things that you need to get right. Shining your light actually helps you to get right. Don't let Satan shut your mouth by what you've done in your life. We've all done something that, we shouldn't, that we're not proud of. Here's my point. If you're saved today, let the light inside of you shine. What does that even mean? I'm not talking random uh, just theory out here. What are we talking about? The light that is inside of us is only one thing because we know in and of ourselves we have no righteousness. My righteousness is as filthy rags. I can't be good, right? My righteousness comes from one place, and that is God. And, and basically what we're saying is this. The light that is in you is the truth of salvation. I am forgiven. I am redeemed in spite of me. This is what God did. He took my sins upon himself. He died on the cross. He rose again. Let me share that good news with you. That is a truth and a light that just goes out and casts darkness out. Let that light shine. Let that testimony go. Unbridle it. 
And the other thing he said is you are salt. You are flavor. You add, the world thinks they add flavor. The world has no flavor, they're bland. Just like kids that are trying to find acceptance of some sort, they try to fit in with the crowd. And to be honest with you, there are some crowds out there in the world today and they think that they are being unique. They think that they are being different. And so they start acting a certain way and doing a certain thing and being a certain way. And it's not God-honoring. And the truth is, what they're doing is they're just in their uniqueness becoming like a whole bunch of other people that are trying to do the same thing they're doing. So while they're saying they're being unique, they're being just like other people. Because they're checking off a box and getting in a fad. The truth is, as a Christian, what is truly unique about us? Have you ever, I don't know how many of you like to cook. I have a, I have a problem. And my problem is, I like spice. I love spices. And if I see something new, I'll buy it. It's like three bucks, four bucks, I'll buy that spice. I'll take that home, put it in my spice cat. I don't know if I'll ever use it. You might say, what are you going to use it for? I don't know. But I want it just in case that day ever comes. We don't keep things in our house long if, it, if it's the expiration date's passed, right? Uh, you know, there was a generation where moms would take things and, and add, they would take the leftovers and they'd stick them in. By the way, if you grow up in the South, you know good and well if you open up the fridge and you're wanting some butter, don't get that tub of butter that's in that fridge because it's not going to be butter. It's probably going to be some food from three months ago. And you're going to be a science project when you open that thing up. You're going to see that. Here's my thing about it. We understand that in, in, in our homes, growing up the way we've grown up, there's a certain era, man. People saved everything forever. And you're like, oh, it's good. It's only two years past the expiration. You still get some good out of it. And we're just like, I grew up, and mom used to be like, it's still good, Jason. The milk's still good. It's seven days. That's just when you have to sell it. You still can drink it for another seven days. And I'm like, I don't know. So <laughs> it's just generational, right? I went through, I, so I throw everything out. I say all that to say this. The, my cabinet, though, is not that way. Man, I treat those spices different. I can use those spices later, right? I found one the other day. I pulled off the cabinet. I thought, that's years old. I had that before I moved here. It went in the moving box when we came here. I threw that sucker out, you know, because I'm thinking, I don't know. Here's my thing. I love different spices. I love the flavor. You know why? Because I don't like bland food. I talked about bland food before. Here's my thing. We, with the Holy Spirit of God inside of us, we add uniqueness, true, authentic individuality. Something that is very unique. Don't you like coming across that unique? I remember there was a place in Florida we used to go to. It shut. It, no, it burned down. But it was a sea market. It was actually called the sea market. And it was a butcher shop for seafood, basically. Fresh caught seafood. And you know what they had in there? They had a little restaurant on the side. Those, it was a hole in the wall. That was the best food. I love that place. Because it had a seafood butcher, whatever you want to call it, and a restaurant together right there in the same room. Yesterday, Kathy and I missed lunch, and because we were talking, shocker, and so they had a lunch at the uh, at the retreat we were at, and they were serving tacos. So Kathy was already in the mood for Mexican. So I said, "Well, let's just go get Mexican." So we got in the car, and I pulled out my phone because I didn't know where anything was at, and I pulled out my phone and I typed in Yelp. I put in Mexican. And number one popped up, four and a half out of five stars, over 200 reviews. So I thought, man, that's got to be good food. 
So we drove to it till we found it, and it was a hole in the wall in a strip mall where this didn't even have a sign. The sign had been blown out by a storm, and there was nothing there except that one little strip mall. There was nothing anywhere near it on either side. And it was a Mexican grocery store. Okay, some of you have been to those kind of places. I have never been in a Mexican grocery store. I walked in there, and I thought, okay, well, there, there were two checkout aisles and groceries here, about three aisles of groceries. It was real small. And on the left was a, only way I can say it is a Hispanic butcher shop, like foods that are specific to Hispanic culture. And it was all fresh meat. It was all butcher shop on the side. But in the back, there was a little counter, and they were cooking food. And I thought, okay, well, this had four and a half out of five stars. <laughs> I walked back there, and it wasn't the cleanest looking place in the world. I walked back there, but I don't care about that anyway. Best places are holes in the wall. I walked in the back. Nobody in there working behind the counter except for one person understood English. I thought, okay, now we're starting to really dial it into... And I looked over. They had homemade fried pork skins in the counter. I mean, I'm talking about this long. It was, I was like, wow. So I did get a couple of those. And then we ordered our food. Homemade. Everything was homemade. Best salsa. Me and Kathy, we took the to-go boxes, got in the van, and we sat in the car and ate them right there. That was delicious. You know why? Because it was authentic and it was original. I remember one time I had a foreign exchange football player from Mexico play for me when I was coaching in Louisville. And he came up from Mexico and he was playing on my football team. And I, I decided, you know what, I'm going to take, take Bernie out. We're going to go out to eat. I said, hey, let's go eat Mexican. He said, okay. We go out to eat Mexican. We sit down in a Mexican restaurant. He said, this isn't Mexican. And I said, yeah, but Mexican people are running it. He said, I don't care who's running it. This isn't what we eat normally. And so anyway, the whole point is, I think I ran into what he was talking about yesterday, right? So if I can find that around here, I'm going to probably do that again. Here's my point in that. You and I are, if you're saved today, you're authentic Christian. And you carry the Holy Spirit of God inside of you. It's not a fraud. It's not a fake. It's not pretend. It's not make-believe. If you hold the truth of God in you, you bring a flavor to this world this world cannot even begin to comprehend. So Christ starts out the entire Sermon on the Mount, and he says, you are the salt and the light. When he de- He's making a declaration. He is speaking with authority, and the Pharisees were there to hear it. And in fact, after he gives the example of the house established on the rock, and then he talks about the house established on the sand, the Bible says they're wondering, man, he speaks with so much power and authority because he was speaking declaratively. Satan does not want you and I to feel or to understand or know that we own absolute truth as Christians. That's why this world is in an absolute, all-out assault on truth. They don't want truth to be spoken. They don't want truth to be declared. Because who are you to think that you know the difference between right and wrong? There has to be a gray area. There has to be a fine line. There has to be the middle. And we know that in some cases and some things that those things are real. But the truth of the matter is, this Bible right here 
specifically declares sin and righteousness. It declares how to live and how not to live. And let me tell you something, it doesn't change just because it was in the Old Testament. There are things that Christ specifically mentions, even in this passage, that are different now that Christ said, because man corrupted what was even given in the Old Testament. But Jesus said, I did not come to destroy the law. I came to fulfill it, to complete it. And so the idea of truth resting inside of you and I, that's flavor. For a, and that's spiritual seasoning for a spiritually bland world that is desperately seeking for contentment, that is desperately seeking fulfillment, that is desperately seeking a purpose. And you and I, if we know Christ We know purpose. We know fulfillment. In the days as a Christian when we wander and when we don't understand that concept and we lose sight of that truth is a sad place to be for a Christian because we never have to be there. Ever. When we can literally crucify ourselves afresh daily to Christ and say, Lord, and what happens is sometimes we are blinded. Sometimes we get totally, instead of understanding that my feet are on the rock, I start looking at the storm. And I start worrying about the storm. There used to be a poster that was around a long time ago about some lighthouse off the coast, I think of France, that was in the middle of an ocean or sea. And it was just there on a rock by itself. Man, those storms would be raging around it. And that lighthouse just standing there. Man, if I was a lighthouse keeper, I sure would be up there in that tower thinking, Woo, I hope this rock is strong. I hope this tower is strong. Because I'd be looking out there. But i got to tell you, in my humanity, sometimes that's what happens, isn't it? <laughs> I'm sitting there thinking, I hope they built this really good. And that's what happens to us. So he started off with that. Then he says this. He said, I didn't come to destroy it, but to fulfill the law. And then if you look down, and I'm not going to read them all, but you can maybe mark it and go back and look at it later with these points. Here's the next one. Verses 21 to 32. Christ then emphasizes that our biggest problem, you are the salt and you are the light. I did not come to destroy the law, to fulfill the law, and... To sum up those verses, your biggest problem is not external. Your biggest problem is internal. That is your biggest issue. It's not other people. It's not the job. It's not your friends. It's you. And if we can get strong, if we can increase our strength internally, then those storms aren't going to matter. If you look at that... He says in verse... He goes in from verse 21 to 32, and he starts giving comparisons. He starts giving uh, he starts giving these illustrations that you have said thou shalt not kill. I say this. You say you should not commit adultery. I say if you look upon a woman. You say this and I say he's saying you think you have checked off righteous boxes because of external actions. And he says the truth of the matter is you're doing the same things but you're just doing them inside your mind right now. And by the way, you are what you think about. Because we think, if I can box up my actions, and I've eliminated all my actions, but my brain is still over here, then I'm, I, that, I'm not doing that, so I'm, I'm where I need to be. That's not true. Christ says that's not true. You might as well be doing it, because that's, that's what you are. So you need to start getting on this right here. By the way, 
It's a battle everybody faces, and there's always something in our mind that God, whatever it may be, whatever it could be, it could be self it could be self-pity, it could be selfishness, it could be uh, hatred or bitterness towards somebody else, whatever it may be. If it's in here, then we, need, we still need to deal with it. Just because the external stopped. And then you think about this. So he says, your biggest problem in this whole sermon, you're the salt, you're the light. And isn't it interesting? You are the salt, you're the light. And then he turns around and tells them, and here's your problems. But that's not how we're wired, is it? We're wired to think, well, if I have those internal problems here, if I have those sins that, that are in here, then I'm not salt or light. No, you are salt or light. You're either not seasoning or you're not shining your light because of what's here. So he still calls on us to be salt and light, just like he still called Peter knowing Peter was going to deny him. He still called Thomas knowing Thomas was going to doubt him. Because he knew there was a day when they came back. He knew there was a day when they returned. He knew there was a day when they went and they would become the leaders he knew that they would be. And then he says this, if you think on the hills of you, you having more internal problems than you have external, he turns around in verses 33 to, 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 30 to 48 and he says this. He says, basically, if you think you're doing pretty good, I need you to do more. That's what he's telling them. You think, I'm doing pretty good spiritually, and Christ says, nope, you're not doing enough. And here's what he says you need to improve. Verses 33 to 37, he says you need to improve your speech. Don't make declarations that you have no power to control. Don't swear to things that are going to happen when you don't, you're not God. You don't have the power to enforce it. You need to improve your speech. You need to improve your response to people, God tells us. In verses 38 to 42, he, he attacks our human nature of responding to people as they've treated us. No matter what the example is, he gives several examples in this passage. But Christ says, you need to focus and you need to be careful how you respond to people. And he's talking to his children, he's talking to salt, and he's talking to light. You want to be the seasoned salt you're supposed to be? You want your light to shine? He said, first of all, you need to understand that the law that I came to fulfill it. Second, you need to understand that your biggest problem is internal. Third, you need to understand that you need to do more than what you think you are currently doing. And he closes that out in verse 42. And he says in verse 42, in verse 43, you have heard it hath been said, thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you in verse 44, love your enemies, Bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you, that ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. For he maketh his son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. In chapter 5, verse 45. In verse 46, For if you love them which love you, what reward have ye? Do not even the publicans the same? If you salute the brethren only, what do ye more than others? Do not even the publicans also? But ye therefore, be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. He closes that part out, your response to other people, and he closes the whole summation of it out, love them. What did he say? 
The greatest commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. And then he says, love your neighbor as yourself. We need to alter how we deal with other people. But it's fun to hold a grudge. It's fun to wish ill will towards somebody else. But somebody did something to somebody I love, so I don't like them. Somebody hurt this person. Have you ever thought that the person that hurt you or the person that hurt the person you love has been hurt themselves and that's how they got in the state they're in right now? You ever think that maybe they need a hand reached out to them in love? Maybe they need the truth of God poured into their life? So rather than attack them, maybe speak truth? I'm not talking about accept their sin. I'm talking about speak the truth of God in love. Then he says this, check your pride. This is my summation of it. Chapter 6, verses 1 through 7 is basically God is telling them, check your pride when you do good. When you're trying in the process of doing good. Have you ever had something that was over-seasoned? Kathy and I made the mistake, or I made the mistake. I like to bring, when I, when I make mistakes, I like to bring Kathy into it too. But... I read one time that if you oversalt a raw steak and then later get the salt off of it and cook it, that it'll make it more tender. And I thought if I would do that, then that salt would not still be on it, that it would, because it, anyway, it was something, it was a long time ago. It was a mistake. I'm admitting a mistake in cooking right here. Let me tell you, it was like eating stinking country ham. It was terrible. It was worse than country ham, my kids say. That was terrible. Dad tried something new. Now, granted, I tried the oven steak. That was new. That was really good. But that new one, man, when I tried to do that, that was terrible, right? Have you, ever, have you ever done good and you just want everybody to know you did good? You did something for God and it made you, made you sort of proud that you did something for God. God says you need to get to a point spiritually where you can bring that flavor but you're not making people run for water to get away from it. You know what I'm saying? He says, when you give, try to give privately. When you pray, pray privately. When you help people, don't let some people see what's happening with one hand. Don't let your left hand know what your right hand's doing. You want to be nice for somebody? Don't do it for accolade. Don't do it for attention. Don't do it for them to pay attention. You do it for God, and just because it's out of the goodness of your heart, and you want to express love on them and make them happy, and even though you would make you really happy to see the response, maybe, maybe you just don't need to see that. Maybe you just need to, to rest in the fact that you were able to make someone else happy in their life. Next one is, to sum up, don't be consumed. These are all Sermon on the Mount. So the first one, he said this, you think you're pretty, doing pretty good, I say do more. Your biggest problem is internal, not external. You're doing more, you need to do more in speech. You need to do more in response to people. You need, we need to do more in checking our pride when we do good. We need to do more, move to the next level by not being consumed with physical or human worry. Is it enough? What am I going to do now? Christ says in verses, chapter 6, verses 8 through 34 in this sermon, and I'm not going to read all of that, but he basically said to him, he said, if you have anything, come to me. 
He gave him an example of how to pray. We get the Lord's Prayer from that passage. All of this was on the Sermon on the Mount. And he goes through all of this, and he talks about, uh, about uh, looking at materialism, and he rebukes that. He talks about um, just how if we give, God will give back. We need to quit worrying about the circumstances around us because God's got it in control. That's what we were talking about this morning before service over here with, with Stan and Kathy. We were talking about how a person got saved recently as a result of the cleanup from the storm that we just had. If the, you know, God doesn't. God looks at the physical issues of our world, the structural buildings, the the material things, and all of those things to Him are just things. The only thing that matters to Him is your soul. Even our bodies are not that dramatically involved in it in his concern. He's more concerned with the soul. Why? Paul said to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, and for me to live is Christ. But if I die, that's even better. That's gain. So as far as God's concerned, he's looking at the bigger pictures at play, which are the eternal souls of the people that are on this planet. And we look at the different things swirling on around us, but even in the midst of that, you have somebody get saved. Well, that's a win for God. And you look at those kind of things, we shouldn't be consumed, Christ says, with the physical. We should not be consumed with worry or stress or, or just constant worrying about different things that are just simply out of our control. All we can do is just give that to God. What, it is a sin for me to sit and be anxious about things that I can't do anything about. That's a sin. You've got to give it to God and you've got to let it go. You can't obsess over those things. God never called us to be in a spirit of obsession about those kind of things. True freedom is saying, God, you've got it, and I understand that. It's okay. And then the final thing is chapter 7, verse 1, and then he moves on until we get down to verse 24. He says this. He says, judge not that ye be not judged. He said, you guys need to be, and this is my summation of chapter 7, you've got to be on guard. This means, while you are doing, understanding all these other things, you need to be discerning enough to be on guard against, in regards to two areas. You need to be on guard, you need to be discerning spiritually in regards to yourself and your motive. Why do you do what you do? That's why he said, judge not lest you be judged. He later said, judge righteous judgment. He tells you in one passage not to judge. He tells you in another passage, you should judge. What's the difference? Your motive. If I'm making a judgment to help someone, if I have to call out sin because I want to help them, that is judging righteous judgment. If you call out sin out of ridicule or to point it out or to make you know you're a sinner but I don't have an answer or a resolution or help, then I'm judging with an impure motive. And either way, be prepared because the people you love that you, that you bring judgment to are going to turn around even if you're in the right, even if it's righteous judgment, and they are going to point back everything in your life that they know is wrong. Because that's what hurt people do. They kick back against those that love them the most. And so, he says, you need to, first of all, you need to be on guard in re discerning in regards to the motive in your own heart. And then second, he said, 
you need to be on guard in regards to other people's motives. Because in the same passage at the close of the Sermon on the Mount, after he educated them and after he, after he built them up and exhorted them, after he gave them responsibility, after he told them they were worthy to carry the season and the light, after he went through that, he says, this is what you need to watch out for. Watch out for this, 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 this. Now you need to watch out for your own motive and you also need to watch out for the motives of others. And that's why if you go and you look over, he talks about Enter ye in, verse 13, at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. And then he said this in verse 15, beware of false prophets. That's where you need to be watching out for others and their motive. You might say, preacher, I go in a Christian bookstore. Everything in there is good because it's a Christian bookstore. No, it's not. Be discerning. Not that there's any Christian bookstores left anymore, but you know what I mean. You could call it going to the Christian part of Amazon, whatever, I don't know. But the point is, if you go anywhere, don't assume just because somebody uses the name God, just because somebody puts a fish up somewhere, just because somebody says Christian, that what is there is going to be doctrinal and wholesome for you. It's not true. You need to be discerning. Verse 15 says there are false prophets out there. People that are th- acting like they're speaking truth, but they're empty, they're hollow, they're a lie. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ravening wolves. Verse 16, ye shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? Do people pull an orange out of a, a thorn bush? No. So you'll know them by their fruit. How, how their life lives out. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down, cast into the fire. And he goes on, and after all of that, he closes it out with our text verse. If you hear all the things I just told you, he says, and you do them, I will liken him unto a wise man which builds his house upon a rock. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat upon that house, and it fell not. Why? For it was founded upon a rock. So here's the difference, guys, and this is where we're going to close it. The rock is Christ. The rock is the Word of God. The rock is everything we just talked about in the entire Sermon on the Mount. The rock is how a Christian should live. Have you ever built a sandcastle? So the alternative to the rock is building your house on a sandcastle. And so what is the sand? If the rock is Jesus, what is the sand? The sand is anything else but Jesus. So if you've built your life on money, on success, on affirmation, on all the things he spoke against in the Sermon on the Mount. If that's what you built your life on, then the first time storms hit, you're going to fall on your face. That's Bible. So, we build sandcastles on occasion on vacation. And when you build a good sandcastle, you want to put a good moat around it, right? Because then we can watch the water go into the moat and go around. But eventually the tide rises above the moat and then it starts hitting the front wall of the sandcastle. If this is the sandcastle right here, what is it? It doesn't just come over and, and overflow it. That's not the way sin works, by the way. When the storms and the trials and the negative things of life hit, what do they do? They come in a little bit at a time. They hit a little bit at a time. A little bit. And every time they hit, 
they're washing away that sand underneath that wall. And you know, the funny thing is, the top of that wall looks pretty normal. Up here, that part, that looks normal. This is changing. Your structure, your foundation, how confident you are, how secure you are, that's all changing and washing away until all of a sudden the whole thing just falls over. You know why? Because you built on the wrong thing. God says you build it on the rock, and you're going to be okay. Man, you're going to take a beating sometimes, but you're going to be okay. You know what the sad thing is? Sometimes if we're not careful what we do, man, we built our house on a rock. It's built on Christ. This has nothing to do with salvation. This has to do with how you're living. You build your house on, on, the, on Christ, solid foundation. You know what Christians are capable of doing, unfortunately? We bring in the moving truck. We lift that whole house up. And we drive it over here, and we set it back down on sand. No reason to do that. We got tired of keeping it on the rock. And usually it's because of us, not others. The storms may be external, but where you place that house is all up to you. Let's build our house on the rock.